Well, good morning, everyone. You will find Joshua chapter 9 on verse 157, on page 157 of the Red Pew Bibles. And last week we saw how Joshua and the Israelites were taking the land that God had given them and God's judgment on the people of the land. And this week we're going to read about how some of those people who lived in Canaan responded to the threat of Joshua coming and the Lord. So Joshua chapter 9. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, those in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the great sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together and made war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and mouldy. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The men of Israel said to the Hivites, but perhaps you live near us. How then can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua said, Who are you and where have you come from? And they answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, Take provisions for your journey, go and meet them, and say to them, We are your servants, make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home, and on the day we left to come to you, but now see how it is dry and mouldy it is. But these wineskins, they were filled. These wineskins that we filled were new, but see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. The men of Israel sampled their provisions, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them and let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by an oath. Three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbours living near them. So the Israelites set out, and on that third day they came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jurim. But the Israelites did not attack them, because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. The whole assembly grumbled against the leaders, but the leaders answered, we have given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore on them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leader's promise to them was kept. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you while actually you live near us? You are now under a curse. 
You will never cease to serve as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the community and for the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is where they are to this day. All right, let's pray, shall we? Gracious Father, thank you so much for giving us your word, and uh, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. Pray that your spirit be working in our minds and hearts now to help us to focus on what you're saying so that we would live lives that are more faithful to you and faithful to other people. And we pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now, most of us know what it's like to make a commitment which we later regret. Uh, something may have sounded like an absolutely terrific idea at the time, and then we realised that our zeal outstripped our wisdom, you know the feeling? And we had just acted impulsively, and what do we do now? Well, uh, do you break your promise? Uh, do you negotiate a solution, a compromise arrangement? Or do you simply live with the mess that you've created for yourself and do the best you can? Sometimes it's not necessarily our impulsiveness. Sometimes we can be charmed into agreeing to something which we otherwise would not have agreed to. Uh, or we're placed in a situation we, where we kind of feel a bit cornered, where we feel obligated to say yes. Uh, you know, like when you're walking down the street and the salesperson approaches you, and they're so nice and they want to know how your day's been and, and uh, <clears throat> they uh, get chatty with you and they tell you uh, about their thing that they're selling and, and after a few minutes, you kind of feel uncomfortable about not handing over your credit card details. You know the feeling? My strategy with that is that so I say, look, I'm really happy to talk to you so long as you know at the end of this conversation there's going to be no transaction that'll take place. <laughs> uh, sometimes we are deliberately deceived, aren't we? We're deliberately deceived into a business deal because, well, we weren't quite lied to, but the demon was in the detail and we didn't read the fine print. And then there are times when we've We've read the, uh, uh, the small print. We have done our due diligence, checking the facts, but to our dismay, we later discover that we've actually been lied to and we've signed on the bottom line. Now, some of us, you're kind of sitting there thinking, yep, I know that feeling only too well <laughs> uh, because we've already notched up a few lessons from the University of Life in this regard. Joshua and the leaders of Israel knew that feeling as well after they encountered a group of people who were called the Gibeonites. Uh, we see it in Joshua chapter 9 because 
In Joshua chapter 9, word had, had spread. Word had gotten around that the Israelites had arrived on the scene. They had miraculously crossed over the, Jer the, the Jordan River. The city of Jericho was now a crumbling ruins. And now, after an, after an initial defeat, a bit of a setback, the city of Ai was in ashes. Uh, Israel was a very real threat to all of the other inhabitants of that region. The, uh, the region from the Mediterranean, Mediterranean coastline in the west, that's Lebanon, by the way, uh, and eastward to the Jordan River, that whole section of land that the Bible refers to as Canaan. Now, there, are a, there were a number of different uh, people groups or nations which had settled in that region. And it's interesting to think about the, the word Canaan because although it refers to that whole district, that whole sector of, section of land, it comes from uh, uh, the name of someone who appears very, very early on in the Bible and that's the grandson of Noah. His name was Canaan. And in Genesis chapter 10, verses 15 to 19, we're told, uh, that about, we're told about 11 nations which were descended from Canaan. That's where the name comes from. And those 11 nations included the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and others. By the way, there's also a specific people group, a specific nation, which are called the Canaanites. But collectively, all of the various peoples who were living in Canaan, by virtue of the fact that they were living in Canaan, collectively, they are called the Canaanites. But then within that, you've got one specific group of people who are specifically called the Canaanites. Does that make sense? That helps us to understand how the Bible's using the, the term the Canaanites and then it also, within that, talks about Jebusites and Hittites and all the other ites and so on. In verses 1 and 2 of Joshua 9, the kings of six of those nations, uh, including the Canaanites, by the way, the, the kings of six of those Canaanite nations join forces and form a coalition to fight against Israel. That is their response to the arrival of Israel in their land. And it seems that they had realised two things about Israel. <clears throat> Number one they had realised that Israel's God was, is strong. Uh, strong enough to miraculously cross over the Jordan River, strong enough to miraculously defeat Jericho, and that therefore it would require a considerable firepower. It would, it would uh, involve the combined power of each of their nations and their nation's God in order to defeat Israel and her God. That's the first thing that they had learnt. Second thing is that although Israel is strong, they had learnt that Israel was not invincible. 
After all, the first time that Israel attacked the city of Ai, what happened? They were defeated. Israel can be beaten. And so therefore they form this military coalition to go up against Israel. And we'll see more about what happened in respect to that next, uh, or two Sundays' time, the next passage. But what we look at today is the fact that uh, not everybody joined in with this military coalition. Because in verses 3 through to 13, we meet the people of the city, the city which was called Gibeon. Now, they belonged to uh, the Hivite people, and it seems that there were some satellite cities as well which they also controlled. But these people of the city of Gibeon, uh, referred to as the Gibeonites, who were racially Hivites, they rebelled against their king because their king, in verse 1, had signed up to join the coalition against Israel. But the elders of the city of Gibeon, they'd broken away from their king. And in verse 3, they had come to a different view as to how to respond to Israel. Because they had seen what happened to the cities of Jericho and Ai, and they frankly did not like their chances against Israel and her God, even as part of a bigger coalition. Now, I'd say that they're smart, wouldn't you? They're smart. And so they had to work out a different strategy. What they came up with was they decided to try to trick the leaders of Israel into signing a peace treaty with them. Um, check out what they did, verse 3. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. The men put on worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes and all the bread of their, their food supply was dry and mouldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp of, at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, make a treaty with us. Now, it seems that the Gibeonites had done their homework because it seems that they had some inside knowledge about what God had through Moses, instructed Israel to do earlier on. Uh, later on in verse 24, we see that these Gibeonites had clearly been told that God had promised to give the whole of the land of Canaan to Israel and that God had told the people of Israel that they were to wipe out all of its inhabitants. Now, remember from the other week, we... Uh, I said that that is because of judgment for sin. It's not just willy-nilly, just wipe out these people. They were actually very sinful, and this is God's judgment upon them. The Gibeonites knew of what God had told Israel. How did they get that information? Well, we just don't know. But they, it seems that they also knew more than that. They had more intel, if you like, because they didn't simply front up to Joshua and say, hi, 
we're your new neighbours from down the road, how about we sign up for a peace treaty? They didn't do that, did they? Because there were two other vital pieces of information that they knew from God's word. They knew, firstly, that in Exodus chapter 23, that Israel had been commanded that they were not to sign any covenants, any treaties, any agreements with the peoples of the land that God was going to give them. They weren't going to sign a treaty. Secondly, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10 to 18, they seem to know that God did allow Israel to make treaties with cities that were a long distance away from Canaan. So you put those two bits of information together and you can imagine the lawyers and the diplomats and the politicians in Gibeon sitting around the conference table thinking, what's our strategy? And they go, aha, we think that we've found a solution. And the solution is this, send some men to Joshua, tell these men to pretend that they have come from one of these faraway cities that Israel is allowed to sign a treaty with. Um, and get, then get them to, uh, get Israel to sign a peace treaty and do so in the name of Israel's God and then hold them to it. And that's what they do. And you've got you've to take your hat off to them as well. You've got to hand it to them because they actually... They weren't sloppy about this. They put some effort into their deceit. Um, in verses 9 through to 13, there are two things which they did. First of all, let's check out the story that they spun. Uh, verse 9. In verse 9, uh, they answered, Your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtoreth. See, we've, we've heard about your God. We've heard about how mighty and how powerful your God is. We've heard about all of the things that he did in Egypt. We've heard about how he defeated those other kings on the eastern side of the Jordan River. We've heard about all of those things. But what is it that they didn't mention? How about we've heard about what your God did to Jericho and to the city of Ai? No mention of that. Because they couldn't mention that, could they? Because if they, they're not supposed to even know about that. Those things have just recently happened and they're very nearby and for that information to get back to their distant and faraway land and then for them to come out seeking it, no. They, they just pretended to be completely ignorant of those facts. Secondly, check out their appearance because they didn't front up to Joshua looking all clean and well-dressed and nicely fed, did they? Because this is supposed to be the end point of a long and arduous journey. Old, dirty clothes, worn out and patched up sandals. Um, their food supplies, old mouldy bread, which they claim, well, that was freshly baked when we started out. And wineskins that are dry and cracked, 
supposedly knew when they started their long journey. But they've just come from down the road. <laughs> it's masterful. And in verses 14 to 15, the leaders of Israel, well, it was hook, line and sinker. They fell for it. <clears throat> We're told that they sampled the food provisions, which I think that meant that, that meant that due diligence for them was that they checked out the fungus on the bread. <laughs> and they thought, yeah, that kind of checks out. So they, they checked that out, but what is it they didn't do? What was their big mistake? Well, they didn't inquire of the Lord, did they? They didn't ask God. And apparently there's a bit of a play, of, play on words in the original Hebrew, <clears throat> which I don't understand. But <clears throat> in the original Hebrew, it uh, apparently says something like they, they didn't seek, they, they checked out the food, but they didn't seek from the mouth of God, which is a nice little play on words, isn't it? All right? And they could have because God had actually made it quite possible for them to check out what God wants. Um, <clears throat> back in Numbers chapter 27, in verse 21, God had appointed a priest by the name of Eleazar, and Eleazar was to be a mediator between God and Joshua, uh, so that uh, he was to provide decisions to Joshua which were... Um, arrived at by inquiring from the Lord. Uh, the way that that happened was that the priest had, um, had two stones which were kept in a pouch uh, inside his, his tunic, uh, his priestly vestments. And the, the two stones were called the Urim and the Thummim. And so if Joshua, the, the way we think it worked was this is that if Joshua wanted a yes or a no answer to a particular question, like, do I believe these people or not? Should I make this treaty or not? A simple yes-no answer, Eliezer, after praying about it, seeking God's will, and so on, would then draw out one of the stones from the pouch, and depending on what stone it was, that's a yes or a no. So that's the way that the Urim and the Thummim, we think, uh, worked. Um, but you know what? Joshua didn't do that. Uh, the Israelites had been suspicious. In verse 7, they, the thought did cross their minds that it could be a trick, but they were gullible and easily fooled. The real problem, however, is that they were so confident of their ability to size up the situation that they did not bother to ask God. Now, we may not get direct words from God. <clears throat> I don't wear a priestly vestment with a Urim and a Thummim. But when we are facing important decisions, how important is it for us to be guided by God? Um, the scriptures aren't going to tell us exactly what house to buy, this house or the other house, or what job to take, this house or the other house. But the scriptures give us, uh, do tell us about right and wrong. So there's guidance there on decisions. Some decisions are simply wrong according to scripture. Uh, but the scriptures also help us to become wise. So that 
when we read through the scriptures, and I'm thinking, you know, particularly like the book of Proverbs, the, the Proverbs teach us uh, to be able to rightly diagnose the human heart, to not be gullible people who think that everything's always going to be okay. Um, the, the Proverbs teach us about the sinfulness of the human heart and the fact that we should actually not necessarily trust things on face value. So there's one proverb that says that one man's story sounds good until another man comes along and starts to question him. And uh, we know that that's right, isn't it? Someone could come to us and tell us a story and we're drawn into it. And we think, yeah, that sounds you know, very sympathetic. To, and, but then you actually you, you put that up to scrutiny and you realise, no, it's so, I'm being lied to here. And so the Proverbs actually teach us to be wise. And so we need to be guided by the scriptures, but we also need to uh, commit certain things to God in prayer. And when we do that, we ask for wisdom, don't we? We ask in a situation where we can't make a decision very easily, if we commit that to God in prayer, we ask for wisdom, and then we might even consult with some godly people uh, before we make the final decision. So often it's our pride which causes us to, uh, to overestimate our ability to size up an issue. Uh, we think that we are wise, we think that we are in control, we don't pray, we don't consult other people, we don't take the wisdom from scripture that says to not just be trusting. And so we make decisions by ourselves and importantly, by, by saying by ourselves, uh, I'm saying that is without God in the decision-making process, like Israel did on this occasion. Verse 15, have a look at it. In verse 15, Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Uh, Israel had learnt that they'd learnt the hard way that they need God's power, God's power to defeat their enemies. Uh, they're about to learn that they need God's wisdom to detect their enemies. Didn't take long, three days in fact. In verse 16, they discovered that the Gibeonites were actually their neighbours and that now they were in a real pickle. Can you see their dilemma? Uh, God has commanded them to destroy the inhabitants of Canaan, but also God wants his people to be faithful to our word. God is a faithful God. God wants us to be faithful. God wants us to, uh, to do that which we promise. That's part of God's will for us. Now, sometimes people make some rash and really stupid, foolish promises, um, even promises to God. Uh, in, jo in Judges chapter 11, there was a man by the name of Jephthah. Now, Jephthah is later commended in the book of Hebrews for some aspects of his life, presumably, but presumably not for this particular uh, incident. 
he told God that uh, if God gave him victory in a particular battle, then when he arrived home from his victory, the first thing that walked outside of his front door, he would sacrifice up to the Lord as, a, as, a, as an offering. Right? And then when he comes home victorious, his dear daughter rushes out of the house to go and greet her father. Stupid man. Foolish man. And he actually fulfilled the vow that he'd made to the Lord. Um, perhaps he could have confessed his foolishness, gone to the altar, made some um, sin offerings to the Lord and asked for forgiveness. Or he might have even decided to offer himself as a sacrifice instead of killing his daughter. It was a stupid promise. It was like Saul when he vowed that none of his men would eat any food by a particular time frame and the word didn't get around to anyone and his son Jonathan found a honeycomb and ate from it. Foolish decisions, foolish commitments. And we're not supposed to make those. We need to be really careful with what we promise, don't we? Uh, and the reason we need to be, prom be really careful with what we promise is because uh, as God is faithful, so too God wants us to be faithful to our word. When we make promises to people, we should, commit those, we, we should fulfil those promises to the very best of our ability. In Psalm 15, and I'm not talking about the stupid promises like killing your daughter, but in Psalm 15, it says, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? And it goes on to answer, he who keeps his oath even when it hurts. Sometimes it's not convenient for us to keep our promises, but we've got to make every effort to do so. In verse 17, the leaders of Israel made their decision and their decision was not to attack and destroy Gibeon. That was an unpopular decision. In fact, we're told that the whole assembly grumbled against them. And you know what? That's understandable that people would grumble about that decision. But in verse 19, the elders were concerned. They were concerned because they had sworn the oath by the Lord, the God of Israel. Um, by the way, in, Matthew, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says it doesn't actually matter if you've sworn an oath by the temple or you've sworn an oath by Jerusalem. You don't actually need to sign on the bottom line because a, a, a person's word is their bond. A person's word is their security. Uh, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Uh, there is no greater value that you can add by saying I swear by the Bible or whatever. We've got to be trustworthy. Our word is our bond. But the elders were concerned because they had sworn this oath. It was sworn by the Lord, the God of Israel. And therefore, if they break the oath, then the name, the reputation of the Lord would be damaged. But more than that, it seems from the text that what they feared was that God would punish them 
if they broke that oath. And so therefore, instead of attacking Gibeon, a decision was made. We see it in verse 20. In verse 20, this is what we will do to them. We will let them live so that wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for the entire community. So the leaders promise to them was kept. Now, I want to ask you this question. What do you think of, what do you think of the Gibeonites? Uh, was what they did right or was it wrong? Is it yes or is it no? Or is it a bit of both? Uh, in, in verse 24, they confessed. They, they came clean with Joshua and said, look, the reason why we deceived you was because we were in fear. Uh, they knew that they had no chance against Israel and Israel's God. They didn't want to fight. They wanted to live. You know, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And to some extent, this fear of the Lord led them to doing an action which was, in one sense, was wise. Uh, and in the Gibeonites, we see that they were, they were less like the kings in verses 1 and 2 who wanted to go to war. They were just a little bit more like Rahab who wanted to find refuge uh, in, the, in, in God. When they came to Joshua with their worn out sandals and their mouldy breads, uh, in verse 9, how did they introduce themselves to Joshua? They said, we are your... You see what it says in verse 9? We are your servants. We are your servants. Now, there's sort of a nice Middle Eastern kind of etiquette involved in that. Well, now the Gibeonites would actually be servants. In verse 27... Uh, chopping wood and carrying water, not just for the community, but also for the altar of the Lord. Did you notice that? For the altar of the Lord. So what sort of a future do you think that is? Do you reckon that's a bad future or do you reckon that's a good future? At the very least, it beats being dead, doesn't it? It beats being dead. But serving for the altar of the Lord you'd have to think that they're, they're likely to actually learn a bit about the Lord, aren't they? They're likely to learn more about this God whom they feared. They're likely to learn that he is a God who is full of mercy and who is faithful to his promises. Now, we don't know much more about the Gibeonites except for two things. There may be more things in Scripture about them, but here's the two things I found out about the Gibeonites from the rest of Scripture. First of all, hundreds of years after this deception and this treaty took place, hundreds of years later, in 2 Samuel chapter 21, uh, King Saul actually broke the oath that Joshua had made with the Gibeonites. He... He murdered some Gibeonites. 
And the reason that he murdered some Gibeonites was that he actually wanted them to be annihilated. He wanted genocide. He wanted them to be wiped off the face of the earth. God had something to say about that. God was faithful to the oath that was made to Gibeon, to the Gibeonites. And God punished Israel for what Saul did. He punished Israel with a famine which occurred during the time of uh, Saul's successor, David. And when David inquired of the Lord as the reason for this famine and was told because of the slaughter of these Gibeonites, a um, recompense was made to the Gibeonite uh, people and some of Saul's sons were slaughtered in order to say, we're sorry that we break the oath. God was actually faithful to Gibeon. That's the first thing we learn about the Gibeonites in the rest of Scripture. The second thing is this, that hundreds of years after that event, when the Jews had been in captivity, in exile in Babylon, out of the land, in a long, in a faraway land in Babylon, and the Babylonians had been defeated by the Persians and Cyrus was the new king the Persian king and Cyrus's policy was not to keep these people in exile but to send people back. And Cyrus allowed, he released the Jews from their captivity in Babylon when they made what truly was a long and arduous journey from that distant land back to the land of God's promise in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 27, we're told that among their depleted number, there were 95 of the men of Gibeon. Worn out sandals, dried and cracked wineskins, maybe even some mouldy bread. But this time included with God's people to rebuild his city, to rebuild his temple, that they may worship him in the land that God gave, the promised land. Just as Gentiles like us now do so through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In their pride, Israel's leaders had created a mess for themselves. So what to do? Well, they could not break their oath. Even though their oath had been wrongly obtained, uh, the, the oath had been wrongly obtained because they had wrongly neglected to seek the mind of God. They couldn't change that. But un they, they couldn't wind back the clock. But under Joshua, what they did was they decided to live as faithfully as they could in that twisted situation. Do you ever make commitments that you later regret? Do you ever make promises that were foolish? Well, I do, and I have. And sometimes in that situation, what we've got to do is we've, as uh, <clears throat> Peter Charles sometimes says to me, when I tell him about a mess I've created, he says, Scott, it's what you do next that counts. Forget the past, 
and move on. It's what you do next that counts. And that's true. It's true because sometimes we find ourselves in a mess of our own making. We cannot reverse that. But what we can seek to do is to seek after God's mind, God's will, as to how in that context we can be obedient, we can act faithfully. And we do so knowing and trusting that even from the mess of our foolishness, that God in his wisdom can bring about his good. His good for us, his good for other people, and he's good for his name, for his reputation's sake. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are a good and a faithful God. Father, we acknowledge that there are times when we are proud and we do not seek your mind. We overestimate our ability to size up a situation and we make rash and foolish decisions. Sometimes we make decisions because we've actually been pressured and haven't uh, understood the depravity of the hearts of other people. Father, we pray that when we find ourselves in those circumstances, that we would be people who seek to be faithful and to honour you. Um, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.